There are not that many places in the world where you can meet bears, whales, orcas, sea lions, and so many other wild species, all against the backdrop of fire-breathing volcanoes. I'm Sean Thomas, this is Inland Visions, and welcome to the magic that is Kamchatka. Kamchatka boasts the highest recorded density of brown bears on Earth, and the Kronotsky Nature Reserve is where we can get close to them in their natural habitat. Alexei Maslov has been watching and studying wildlife here at the reserve for years. Thank you for taking the time to bring us out here so close to the bears. Um, they say that Kamchatka is home to about 5% of the bear population. Uh, why Kamchatka? Why here? Why is it so good? And how many are here at this reserve? But it's thought Kamchatka is home to about 24,000 to 26,000 bears. The bear is a symbol of Kamchatka, like volcanoes. Another important symbol, I'm not sure how to rank them, is salmon. It's the only place on Earth where all six species of Pacific salmon have their spawning grounds. It's the main source of nutrition for bears. Their main goal in life is to find enough food to eat for the winter. It's a matter of survival. Kamchatka is very sparsely populated. Most of it's wild. Add to that the abundance of fish, and you have perfect conditions for a high concentration of bears. At least, that's what I think. How many bears are specifically here on the reserve, do you know? It's hard to say how many there are in the reserve right now. They're migrating. But here on Olga Bay coast, there are about 15 to 20 bears. I've been observing them on a regular basis. These are just the ones that are fishing along the coast and in the river mouth. It's hard to estimate how many are higher up the river. We believe there are about 2,000 bears in the reserve. They're migratory though, so these figures fluctuate, but the concentration remains quite high. Right now, we can see two bears here, two more over there, and still more are coming. We know that they come here to feed. They're getting ready for the winter, and so they're feeding on the fish. We know that Kamchatka is the only place left where all six Pacific species of salmon come uh, to home to spawn. What is that all about, and how important is that to, for the bears? I've been observing fish for more than four decades, and this is still something mystical to me. It all begins in late May. All of a sudden, you have great schools of fish coming. First Chinook salmon, then sockeye, then pink salmon, the most widespread species. Millions of fish just appear out of nowhere, coming here all the time for a month now, high tide or low tide. It's pink salmon at the moment, but soon it'll be chum salmon and coho salmon. It's a mystery to me. As my friends used to say, it's all God's will. This cycle makes salmon special. They grow and mature in the ocean before coming back to spawn and die. After they die, their bodies break down into a number of biogenic components. These provide feed to primary food chains, phytoplankton and zooplankton, which in turn serve as food for others. So the parent's death gives life to their offspring. That's it in a nutshell. Now I've heard that 
all life, not just the bears, but all life in Kamchatka revolves around fish. Why is that? Fish are the foundation of life here. Mainly it's food. There's really a lot of it. As I said, I've been around fish all my life. It's mind-boggling. The latest data for this year shows that about 400,000 tons have been caught so far. It's huge. There's no plowing or sowing. It's nature which forms the backbone of the real economy and sustains the animals and people who live here. It couldn't be any other way. Back to the bears. Uh, how much fish can a bear actually eat during this time period when they're getting ready for winter? There are several studies by U.S. and Canadian scholars that show an adult bear can eat up to 30 or 40 fish, about 60 kilograms a day. When a salmon run begins, if they're hungry, they eat the fish whole. Later, when their bellies are full, they get picky and sometimes just eat the best bits. Towards the end, they're just filling up what space they have left. So they switch to pine cones, mushrooms, rowan berries and so on. But fish is their staple. Now, we've been told all our lives to stay away from bears, and we've got one coming up close to us right now. Um, are we safe? Yes, we are so far. Da, he's... he's... <laughs> that was very interesting. Okay, so a bear's quiet. It can run incredibly fast. It is strong. It can crush a car like a tin can. Um, so what do we do, like, if a bear comes to us? Like, how do we not provoke a bear? There are certain rules. There's the minimum safe distance. When he approached us, that was almost too close. Americans have stricter standards than we do. They believe the minimum safe distance is 80 yards. Just now, we're much closer than 80 yards. These animals live in a place where encounters with humans are extremely rare. But I think that instinctively, they feel that humans are higher beings and... I don't know if they realize that I have a gun, but their main job right now is just to eat and gain body fat. As large animals, another concern they have is to expend as little energy as possible. They need to acquire food in the most energy-efficient way. So we're not a priority for them right now. They have their own business to take care of. What needs to happen for a bear to attack a human? But I think it's almost always the human's fault when you break a rule and intrude into the bear's space. The most dangerous situation is an encounter with a female bear and her cub, because she instinctively protects her children. You don't want to be anywhere near the cubs or between them and their mother. That would be very dangerous. So you keep your eyes open and be aware. Also, don't humanize them. They're very dangerous wild animals that can be unpredictable. It would take them seconds to cover the 20 to 30 meter distance in our case. I wouldn't even have time to raise my gun. But then each animal is different. I've been watching this group for over a month now. I've got to know them a little. They all have different patterns of behavior. I know which ones to keep away from. Some bears are easily scared, others aren't. They can be quite brash. You need to analyze every situation separately. It is said that um, uh, bears, their own behavior has been changed by humans. Uh, what does that mean? 
Bears must have no contact with human smells or human food. They mustn't get the idea that it can be easier to obtain. That's rule number one, and it's a must. As soon as a bear tastes something that's easy to get, it comes begging for more, but won't be understanding. Bears, like all other animals, need to eat all the time. So they always choose the easiest and most convenient way to get nutrition for that huge mass of meat and muscle. Human garbage is, of course, very convenient for that purpose. You've been at this for a while, you are experienced. Has there ever been a time where you've come face to face, one on one with a bear, and you were scared in that situation? How did you handle it? Tell me about it. In all my time of living in places like this one, I've had thousands upon thousands of bear encounters. There have been situations where I probably made mistakes. I found myself literally face to face with a bear at arm's length. But in all of those cases, the bears thought it best to go away. I've never had to use a gun or a restraining device. I think I've been careful enough. But such counters are unavoidable when you're living in the wild, especially on paths and in places with shrubs or tall grass. It's a fact of life. But then again, there are certain rules. You should make a lot of noise when you're walking, although then there's a chance you may not hear a bear approaching. So encounters are highly likely, but you should try to avoid them. Some people, including some of my colleagues, say bears in a reserve aren't dangerous. I think they are very dangerous. They're treacherous, unpredictable, dangerous animals. But I've been lucky so far. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us out here. It's been a fascinating conversation, and I just want to say, stay safe. Thank you. <laughs>
The grey whale is the only benthophage among whales, i.e. the only species that feeds on benthos or organisms that live on or under the surface of the sea floor. That's why Olga Bay is a perfect feeding ground for them, where whales spend quite a lot of time eating invertebrates. So I think it's interesting that grey whales are coastal creatures. They prefer shallow waters. Why is that? The average feeding depth of grey whales is about 5 to 10 metres, sometimes even breaking waves on the surface. In the Bering Sea, however, they go to depths of 70 or 80 metres because the organisms they would choose to eat dwell in coastal areas. Now, grey whales also consider this area, I guess, a rest area, maybe, before they go on their big long journey of about 20,000 kilometres. How can they take on such a big swim, and how long does it take them to make that uh, journey? Their trek south takes about eight to ten weeks. You're right, it's about 10,000 kilometers one way, and grey whales travel this distance pretty quickly. It takes them ten days to reach Sakhalin from Olga Bay, which is about 1,000 kilometers. What about um, your job? I know that you carefully study which whales are which, tell them apart, identify them. Uh, how do you do that and why is it so important? We run a photographic identification program and maintain a catalogue of the grey whales, adding photos of new ones every year when we encounter them. We've been able to identify as many as 340 grey whales here and in Sakhalin so far. We know what each of them looks like. We give them names. We keep monitoring those who show up here and their state for example, any pregnant females or lactating females or malnourished whales that need more food. Do you use radio tags or uh, any other mechanisms to keep track of them? We've been using satellite tagging to track them. Tags are applied elsewhere, not here, I regret to say, but our program has benefited through collecting all sorts of data about the grey whales migrating from Mexico to Sakhalin and to Olga Bay. What about the relationship of the grey whales themselves uh, with each other? Do they travel in groups? How do they take care of their little ones? Um, what's that like? Grey whales travel alone as a rule, but we often observe them in groups of two or three, and naturally females travel with the calves. Females teach the young whales to find the feeding grounds, and they remember them as long as they live, which explains why whales keep returning to the same place their whole life long, such as northern Sakhalin and Olga Bay. Now, it's my understanding that Grey whales were once known as the devil fish because they put up a fight against uh, the people who were trying to harpoon them. Now, the Pacific Ocean is coming to get us, but now um, they actually have changed their behavior a little bit. They're more friendly, they're known to interact with people. What can we say that this uh, change of behavior is attributed to? The main reason is that grey whales are no longer hunted in such large quantities as before. There are catch limits established and updated by the International Whaling Commission, the IWC. So the IWC keeps monitoring the population of whales and makes sure annual catch limits can't do any harm to it. Who or what would you say is the biggest threat to grey whales um, and their lasting population? 
Well, the major threat comes anyway from humans. As I already mentioned, grey whales migrate over here for the sake of their feeding grounds, and if humans interfere in any way, it can impact on their feeding routine, and that can be harmful for the animals. The waters off Sakhalin have actively developed oil fields, so human activity is quite intense there. There are seismic exploration works underway, ships and helicopters in the area, pipeline construction activity, and so on. All this surely disturbs the life of the whales. There haven't been any tragic incidents so far, though. Uh, Grey whales are some of the oldest animals on the planet. Uh, they've been around for about 30 million years. How have they been able to stay here for so long, and how have they changed, if they've changed? I doubt they've changed much, if at all, the grey whales. It's the species that has no competition in the animal kingdom. The evolution path of grey whales means they can find food anywhere in shallow coastal waters that have sand or mud. In this, they have no competing species, and this explains how they've stayed around for so long. are on our way to Cape Ziloni, not only to take in this breathtaking scenery, but to speak with Tatiana Ivkovich, who's part of the Far East Russia Orca project. Tatiana, thanks for bringing us up here so we could see where you work. It's a fascinating place. I want to get right down to it. The social structures of orcas is kind of unique, kind of strange. Uh, my understanding is that they always uh, stay with their mother as a family throughout their entire life. Is this normal? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's normal for fish-eating orcas, both male and female, to spend their entire life with their mother. More than that, any orcas born by younger females also spend their entire life following their grandmother. Grandmothers are the founders of a clan, if you like, and the orcas have a very well-developed social network. Other types of orcas have a social structure that's a bit different. Is it always the mother, or a female at least, that is in charge of the pot? It's very hard to say what kind of relationship they have between them, but it appears it is indeed a female orca who is the founder of her family and leader of the group. As a matriarch, a mother and a grandmother, it is the eldest female. What are the relationships like within the group itself? I understand that uh, the children help the elderly, they take turns in caring for each other, sometimes even they share their food. Talk to me a little bit about that. Orcas do share their food. Adult females share food with their children even when they are full-grown adults. Female orcas are known to share food with their adult male descendants. More often, though, food sharing occurs for the benefit of younger calves. The truth is, there's still not much we know about the relationship between orcas and how they take care of each other. One thing we know is that the survival rate for male and female orcas, if the mother orca dies, is different. When a female orca dies, her male descendants start dying too, while her female descendants carry on seemingly unaffected. We know this as a fact, but we still don't know the reason behind it. Mm -hmm. Now, you've been watching carefully over the 
whales locally here, and I know they're not whales, but uh, um, you know the families and you can tell them apart individually. How is that possible? Talk to me, like, how you can do that. It's possible to identify individual orcas by the shape of the spot on their back and scratches on their skin, the shape of fins and scars. I can identify about a hundred orcas. I know their individual numbers. We give them all numbers and names. I've been monitoring what happens to them since 2002. Mm -hmm. What about the language? I understand that uh, different groups of orcas have their own dialects, I guess. The orca families that use similar dialects for communication are related. There are also families with different dialects, and that means they are not related. We consider them belonging to different clans. The mating most often occurs between orcas from different clans. It's possible that their dialects help them choose preferable mating partners. Mm -hmm. Do you have the ability to decipher their language? Can we understand them? The truth is we can't. <laughs> We can't understand them, and it's very challenging research in technical terms. I mean, it's very hard to record underwater the sounds produced by individual orcas. The hydrophone we use records all the sounds in the ocean around it. And I think we're still waiting for a breakthrough in technologies that would enable us to record the sounds made by orcas more efficiently. Orcas' dialects are part of their culture. They are passed down from generation to generation, and that's not something they're born with. It has to be learned. And it's the focus of present-day research. But we don't know what the individual sounds they make mean. That's hard to know. As far as I know, uh, orcas are predators. And they do things as a group. They hunt as a group. In fact, they even have the ability to uh, coordinate complex movements, um, which is chilling in some cases. Uh, talk to me about that and like how they're able to organize Good question. I'd like to know the answer to it, too. I'm not sure how they do it. I guess they communicate acoustically. Maybe they use other methods, besides sounds. Sometimes we see different groups in the water keeping their distance and staying silent. Suddenly they all turn simultaneously and begin moving in a different direction. So they communicate, but we don't know how. It is amazing how coordinated their actions can be at times when orcas hunt a whale or fish together. It is very impressive. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that they have this massive dorsal fin. It can go up to two meters. I also know that in captivity, it can bend over. Uh, why do they need this fin, and why is this particular body part so important? Um... Only male orcas have this long fin that can be up to 180 or 200 centimeters. Females have shorter fins. It probably has to do with sexual dimorphism when males and females look different. This means there is competition, sexual selection. Males compete with each other for a female, and that's why males are generally bigger with larger pectoral fins. I guess the bigger male wins the female during mating. But this aspect hasn't really been researched. Yes, they bend their fins in captivity because they can't move fast. Orcas are really fast, and their blood circulation props up the fin. Here we have an orca called Willie, and his fin is also bent. That's how tourist boat captains recognize him. I guess he got sick at some point, and now he can't swim as fast. That's why his fin is bent. Interesting. Now, I know that... Um they show signs of intellect, 
but can we say that orcas have an intellect? Are they purely intelligent creatures? Do they have emotions? Do they think? Uh, talk to me, what are your thoughts on that? I don't doubt the fact that they have an intellect and experience emotions, like many other animals. It is a difficult aspect to study because they don't have typical physical expressions. When we look at monkeys or dogs, we can see some external attributes that show emotions, aggression, joy, etc. It is much harder with orcas. We know about dolphins that when they flap their tails, this signals irritation, aggression. So this is something that we will have to research, but they definitely experience emotions. When I film orcas for a drone, I see how they hug, tap on each other's bodies with their fins. There is affection. Mm -hmm. um, something that I have to ask about, considering it's gotten the world's attention, uh, around Spain and Portugal, orcas are going and playing maybe, but uh, sinking boats or taking off the rudder. Uh, but also scientists have noticed that this behavior started to spread around the world. Um, is it possible that uh, the orcas in Spain are telling their friends, hey, you have to try this, this is fun? Talk to me, what do you think about this phenomenon? Since orcas are very social, breaking ships is like a cultural tradition for them now. Maybe a couple of orcas tried it first, they liked it and spread the word. There might have been some exchange between groups, we'll see. But their so-called cultural traditions can be spread from one orca to another. Thank you very much. It's been an incredibly interesting conversation, and I look forward to seeing them out here. Good luck to you and to us all. Thank you.